Let me tell you a story, podcast number 46. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, the age of never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Steve and I are happy to be back on the air. A good portion of our summer was consumed with finishing and publishing my latest book, Winds of Change. Plus, um, we did throw a bit of camping and traveling in there. But I'm grateful I can now say Winds of Change is done and available in ebook format online. The print version should be ready within two or three weeks. And, but today I'll read an excerpt uh, later in the podcast from that book. In the meantime, Steve has a poem or two for you. Um, after that, I'll introduce our guest author. I'm going to read a poem that my grandfather wrote, George A. Lyles. I just found this, actually. Uh, But he wrote it in 1952. I won't ask you if you were alive then. And um, you see how how pertinent it might be today, or how up-to-date. Politics, he called it. Politics, politics is heard all over town. And a way out in the country, too. It must be all around. It's all along the highway road, the byway, and the streets. It's politics. It's politics with everyone you meet. Now, Polly's in the office chair, the store, and in the shop. I wonder when November is here if politics will stop. She's long been on the battlefield, the leading in the fight. She needs a rest and medicine to get her system right. For Polly has a bad disease that everyone should fear. And yet the law and people see that she goes everywhere. What awful bad disease is that? Oh, tell one any man? Some say its name is Democrat and some Republican. This poem is by Eugene Shea and it's called Meeting by Chance. The traffic light turned red. She had plenty of time to stop. She was checking her makeup and collided with this cop. I've never heard a policeman lecture a lady in such a tone. You'd think the damaged police car was a vehicle of his own. The squad car belonged to the city, which should have caused no strife. But the culprit in the intersection was his absent-minded wife. (laughs) (laughs) Our special guest uh, for this podcast is Dana Longpre, author of In a Van Down by the River. She's a wife, a mom, a writer, an actress, a singer-songwriter, um, a playwright, a teacher, a dancer, choreographer, uh, just um, an amazingly talented lady who helps other people use their talents in the arts. So before you read, Dana, we'd like to ask you a couple questions. Um, My first question is, how do you find time 
Uh, so I know you have two children, and one still a baby. So how do you find time to do all that you do? I've seen you at book signings, directing youth choirs, acting in commercials. How do you fit it all in? Well, it's a natural response to what's in my heart. So I want to use the example of songwriting. For example, I'm always writing songs, and I know a lot of times people are asking me, how do you come up with your songs? Well, their response to my interactions with people, when I'm interacting with people and I see that they aren't understanding something that's deep in my heart, something that God has taught me, and that I want to communicate that to them in a very sensitive way where I reach their heart without a harshness that can come across through just talking to someone. I go home and contemplate that interaction if it was a lot of times maybe a negative one or just a charged interaction. And I go home and I ponder over God's word and the outcome is almost always a song. And so it's so cool to look back at all the songs that I've written at different points in my life. They're milestones in my life. They're little jewels in my pocket. Um, I don't know if you know the story, Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard. I believe I pronounced her name correctly, but it's a lot like Pilgrim's Progress. And that book I read in high school it touched and changed my life. And it was interesting at the time, I look back at that book constantly in my life, and I look at that, how that was a milestone. And one of the things that they talked about in that book was every time she learned a hardship and overcame it, it was like a little jewel, a little stone or beautiful pebble in her pocket that she collected along the way. And that's how the songs that God literally just gives me, I really want to emphasize that I don't pour over these songs. I don't sit and scratch my head and write them, that they usually come all in one piece in their entirety, come rushing out of me, and I have to write it down as fast as I can. So even with choreography and playwriting and everything, there's a response to what the stirrings that God places in my heart, and they pour out of me, and I just have to capture them as fast as I can on paper so that I don't um, miss the message that He's giving me, really, to share, even not only with myself, obviously it's a lesson that I've learned, but then to turn around and, and share that with other people in a manner that they'll hear it because a song speaks to people, and you can say more challenging topics and challenging things than you would in just regular conversation. So I think I can't stop the flow, I guess would be the clear, short answer to that. How do I find time? I can't stop the creation that's coming through me. I cannot stop that flow. And sometimes when I'm holding my baby and rocking her to sleep and she's crying and my son's asking me a question and I'm trying to cook dinner and my dog's barking at me <laughs> and I say and I feel a flow coming on which happens pretty regularly I say God please please be faithful to remind me of all that you have to tell me later when everything's quiet so that I can get all this down so that's that's what I have to do because I don't want to lose that message that he's trying to give me and I don't uh, but I know that he's faithful to finish that good work in me so I can rest even when I'm trying to cook dinner and my whole world's falling apart. I know that he's faithful to bring that back up, rise that back up in my heart in his time after everybody's asleep and I can stay up late and just pour over my my notebooks. 
with what he's given me. Uh, wow, that's fascinating. So do, do you tend to a, a certain style of song, or are they all different? Well, that's a good question. It depends on the situation. For example, um, I was at Calvary Chapel for four wonderful years leading children's worship, and during that time, my songs were in that environment a response to holes in the theology that I saw that children have and just the simple understandings of Christ. One of the songs I wrote was called Five Minutes, for example, and I had told the kids, and I'd been praying, I said, sometimes you only have five minutes to tell someone about Jesus, and that turned into a song, and that was the chorus, if I only had five minutes to talk to you today, if I only had five minutes, this is what I'd say. I'd say God loves you and has a plan for your life. And it just see how it just turns into a song. It just does. It just can't help it. And cool. Yeah. So so in that environment, I wrote a lot of children's songs over those four years, enough to make probably two CDs that I plan on doing in the next two years. And then when I started just working with teenagers as a fifth and sixth grade teacher at Vineyard, I loved that. And then also the high school Spanish teacher at Vineyard. Then my songs were that age group and that genre and that outpouring. And then so I have a CD worth of music for that age group and that mode. And then I have other songs that I write that are in response to just daily conversations with, and interactions with adults. And so I call those my radio-ready songs. And <laughs> those songs tend to be kind of alternative or kind of country. If that can mix, I have no idea, but it does. And um, God has just given me my own sound, and I finally just allow it and not try to make myself like anyone else. At this point in my life, I've just allowed the genre that he shaped in me to come out, and I enjoy it. I enjoy enjoy what's coming out of me, and I enjoy that I have different messages for different age groups. It's pretty exciting to be in the middle of all this that he's given me. Wow, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dana. That's just so fascinating, but I suppose we should get on with your reading. So um, we'll let you choose two or three chapters, or however many you think our audience would enjoy, and give them a taste of your book, In a Van Down by the River. Poverty. Things at home went from bad to worse for my sister and me. The novelty of our adventure wore off, and the cold hard fact that we were still living in a campground with winter looming was causing tempers to flare. At one point, after eating yet another old airplane meal brought home from my mom's work in the van, my sister and I began to do our homework. I had a question on my science. I don't know. Ask your father, my mother said, which I knew was my death sentence. My dad was the kind of guy that if you didn't get it right away, he would chew your head off, and this was one of those times. Reluctantly, I asked him for help. He gave an obscure explanation and then demanded I understand and tell him the answer. I had no idea. I was terrified, and I was looking intently down at my book. Look at me, he screamed. Do you get it? I was still afraid to look up. Then suddenly he grabbed me by the throat and screamed into my face. I said, look at me. Don't you get it? Then just as suddenly he released me and stormed out of the van. My mother, sister, and I sat there, shell-shocked and speechless. Another terrifying incident was when my sister and I were sitting in the van. I believe it was the weekend because I know we hadn't gone to school that day. Our father and mother were having a disagreement outside by our campsite. 
Slowly, their disagreement heated up until they were shouting at each other, and my father began to violently push my mother backwards. She came right back at him, but then he shoved her harder and began shouting more angrily. Finally and horribly, he grabbed her by the throat and shoved her onto a picnic table. As he leaned over and he screamed into her face, my sister and I sat motionless in the van, watching helplessly like scared mice. We were miles from a phone or any kind of help. We were frozen in fear. Later, my mom came back into the van as if nothing had happened. This is how it always went after a big explosion from my father. After he blew up, he would disappear for a few hours and then come back as if nothing ever happened. He would never apologize or even acknowledge the horrible event. It was just as life as usual again. Near the end of our three-month stint in the campground, my dad finally acquired living quarters for us all, a 20-foot-long by 6-foot-wide pull-along camper. The kitchen table and benches turned into a bed my mother and father would use. On the opposite side of the trailer, there was a couch that turned into a bed for my sister, and my bed folded out of the ceiling. When I was lying on it, I couldn't fully sit up, which felt very claustrophobic. Its curved wood paneling ceiling felt like I was sleeping in a coffin. I was glad there were two tiny windows, one by my head and then another at my foot, because I would joyfully crank the window at my head for a breath of fresh air. Unfortunately for me, a skylight overhead began leaking, and I had to lie off to the side so I wouldn't have to sleep on the soggy part of the mattress. The camper had no electricity, so we used kerosene lamps, which made black sooty smudges all over my face. I would try to wipe them off in the dark before I left for school in the morning, but oftentimes I would just have to wash my face when I got to school. We still did not have water. Plumbing had been available in the tiny camper at one time, but not any longer. So my sister and I still had to haul water from the pump every day for the dishes and cooking. Finally, after three months, we were kicked out of the campground and moved our travel trailer into a trailer court where we were at the, we were at least in civilization. The worst part about moving out of the campground was we no longer had access to an outhouse. The only toilet we had was an old orange construction bucket we had out in the Wanigan, which is a term they use for a built-on porch in Alaska. It was cold and I was too embarrassed to go out there so I would hold it until I got to school. I would get terrible stomach aches from holding my bowel movements for so long. Thankfully, my sister and I would soon become employed, which provided us with public restrooms seven days a week. We eventually had heat from a kerosene space heater that tortured us. My sister and I never knew what the conditions in the camper would be like when we got home. At times, it would seem to be a sweltering 100 degrees, but if we turned the heater off, we would freeze. It was especially hot up where I slept, and even though I was sweating profusely and would have been happy sleeping in hardly anything, I was so worried about my modesty, I suffered in full pajamas and blankets. I was very thankful that my parents allowed my sister and me to get work permits so we could get jobs for ourselves. This was decided after my parents announced that they had no money to help provide us school clothes or classroom supplies, and that if we wanted these things, we would have to provide them for ourselves. This was just fine with me. I was glad for the independence and the freedom of a job provided, especially since it meant I wouldn't have to rely on my unstable parents for any of my needs. After having our identification cards in hand, along with our work permits, we went to a hotel in town and applied. We were hired immediately. Cleaning the rooms was hard work. We were under tremendous pressure to finish within a certain amount of time, and after a while, all the rooms began to look the same. I would have to check and recheck that I had done certain things because of the monotony. There were benefits, though, heat, an indoor toilet, and free lunches. All the housekeeping staff got to eat down in the restaurant. I always loved the days they had breakfast as an option. 
How wonderful it was to eat warm, cooked food instead of the dreadful cold airplane meals my mom would bring home. My sister and I worked at the hotel every Saturday and Sunday, and when my mom finally got an office job, we would work there until about 7 o'clock every day after school. I was so thankful for the bathrooms and the heat this extra work time provided. When we got home, we would never know what mood my father would be in or if he would even be there. We were so glad when he wasn't home. So many times he would begin complaining about how messy things were and how he, he needed more help with the chores, etc. When I had the courage, I would boldly ask, well, what do you want me to do? Quit one of my jobs? Maybe I should. Then I could help out more around here. Then he would always say, no, no, we need the money. Forget it. But then two days later, it was the same old argument. My dad was really big on expensive outerwear, and he thought he was the world's greatest dad when he presented my sister and me with these brand new Sorel boots. But these boots became my nightmare. These were the only winter footwear I had, and after school, I remember clomping around in them on my way to the library or running other errands with my feet halfway out of the boots to protect my heels from the severe chafing they were getting with each step. I could barely walk in them this way and had great difficulty wading through the slush from this slow method of walking. But it was do this or have constantly bloody heels. I was never able to obtain enough band-aids to cover my wounds sufficiently and was in constant pain. My heels developed thick scar tissue on them. Only now, after 20 years, do I have normal-looking heels. My health started deteriorating in other ways, too. When I was at home, I noticed my hair was coming out in chunks on my head, and my head was also covered in sores. My skin, especially on the back of my leg, was covered with sores to an awful extent. I noticed my hair no longer grew, and I had no color in my skin. My lips, cheeks, and face were all the same color with no variation. I brought it up once to my mother, who seemed unworried. At school, my sister and I hung out with a rough bunch, not the typical preppy crowd we hung out in middle school back home. I don't know how we ended up with these friends. It seems they kind of chose us, but there really wasn't a lot of choices at this school. Obviously, we didn't fit in with the wealthy, popular kids, but besides them, there was a small, mediocre crowd, and then there was the rough, oddball crowd. Our friends were in the rough, oddball group. There were Ricky and Darren, who were big, big guys in leather jackets and seemed way too old to be still in high school. Then there were Hez and Donna, both beautiful, busty girls in leather jackets. I remember going to Hez's house and walking through her living room where there was a bowl of marijuana openly on the coffee table. She also boasted about her waterbed and bragged about all her sexual escapades to my sister and me. I was shocked and repelled by her lifestyle inwardly because it was so much like my father's, which I definitely did not want to be a part of. But because I was a people pleaser and wanting to fit in, I said nothing. Hez even commented on the fact that her parents had full knowledge of her behaviors and had no problem with it. I knew my father, maybe even my mother, were just as permissive. When my family had gone to the doctor for a checkup once, my dad had blatantly encouraged me to get on the pill. He would also openly invite me to smoke a bowl with him or have a beer. I always found some reason to leave when he asked me questions like this or when he invited a buddy over to party. Scott was my closest friend. He just jumped into my world in a very dashing way. He had thick jet black hair and hazel blue-green eyes. He was very muscular, a bit stocky, and very handsome. He wore glasses, but this did not detract from his good looks. He was energetic and funny. His sarcastic wit always made me laugh, which I so needed. He, in some ways, seemed like a boyfriend to me because of the extravagant gifts he began to give me, like a faux emerald and diamond necklace and fancy cashmere sweater but his persistent refusal to hold my hand or steal a kiss left me wondering. I worried that I was not attractive enough for him, which increased my self-doubt and anxiety about my already much-damaged self-esteem. 
His friendly, faithful attention kept me hopeful, though, and I slowly felt as if I were falling in love with him. Sometimes after school, instead of working in my mom's office, I would stay in town with my sister and we'd walk over to the library to do our homework until our parents picked us up. Our friends usually came with us, and sometimes we would just hang out for a while. One time, Scott gave me a book while we were at the library with very descriptive homosexual experiences in it. I read it uninterested. I did not realize it at the time, but he was trying to give me a clue to his true identity. As I got to know Scott more, he began to understand my situation at home and became concerned about my sister and me. One day he said, you don't have to live like that, you know. If you ever need any help, you know, just call me. My sister and I just laughed it off at the time. We were so used to just sucking it up all the time that we never thought there might truly be a way out. One night at home in the camper, my sister and I got home before our parents. As we sat and I chatted, I brought up the comments Scott had made earlier that day. My sister said, oh, he's just blowing it out of proportion, or something along those lines. I agreed, and my sister and I started getting ready for bed. That evening, our parents came home and began arguing. Things heated up pretty fast, and my dad announced he was leaving and slammed out the door. I hoped he was serious this time. I really wanted him to leave for good. But in my heart, I knew he would be back. He had no place else to go, for one. And for two, my mom always took him back. My mom followed him out the door, and my sister whispered up to me the same words I had been thinking. Dana, call Scott. The next morning, my dad was sitting at the breakfast table eating, and my mom was busy fixing her coffee. My sister had already gone off to work. I decided to stay home sick that day, which was very out of character for me. I would usually go to work no matter how lousy I felt, just to get away from my dad. But I still wanted to get out of there before things started heating up again, so I told my parents I was going to go on a walk. My mom said, Dana, why don't you get something to eat first? No thanks, I said. Just let her starve, snarled my dad as I headed out the door. And those were the last words I heard from my father. Out in the wind and weather of freezing January, I had bundled myself up in my tattered coat and trudged through the swirling snow. The only thing I could think about was calling Scott. I hiked all the way to the airport, some three to five miles away. Upon entering the bright, busy, sterile environment, I felt out of place in my shabby clothes. I asked a person behind a counter if I could use a phone, and she told me where the payphones were, but I didn't have any money, so I left. About three more miles later, I arrived at a Napa Auto Parts. I went to this counter and heard my sore throat rasp out, I need to use the phone. It's an emergency. The old man gave me the phone without hesitation. I dialed Scott's number and he picked up the phone, and I heard myself say, Scott, I'm afraid to go home. He said a few more words to me and then said, Hang on, I want you to talk to my mom. Before I could protest, his mom was on the phone. She said, Where are you? We'll come pick you up. Um, I said, I'm at a Napa Auto Parts outside of a trailer park, quite a way out of town. But as I was giving these directions, I was afraid. I was so worried my parents were starting to look for me. After I got off the phone with them, I began to pace around the store nervously. I watched every car that drove past or pulled into the parking lot, praying it was not my parents. But they never came. After a while, I ventured outside, feeling cooped up in the little shop, and waited. Finally, a burgundy car pulled up, and Scott told me to get in. I remember being surprised that he was not driving, but his older brother was. Of course, Scott was only 15 years old, but in my mind, he seemed so much older, probably because of the authority and stability he was in my life. The next chapter is called Crazy Now, and this is skipping ahead. It was at this point that I was taken to API, 
which stands for Alaska Psychiatric Institute, for evaluation. This was a psychiatric ward for people of all ages from across the state who needed immediate and emergency assessment, specifically people who could be harmful to themselves or others. It was an ominous-looking building about five to six stories high, which really had that institution feel. Upon entering, I was taken past a gym and met a teacher and some kids who were playing a game. They seemed like a happy enough bunch and pretty typical, too. This put me at ease somewhat. Then I had to go upstairs and be admitted. I had to give them all my possessions and clothes before going onto the girls' teen ward. I remember I had a compact with some blush in it, probably some powder, and then the clothes I was wearing. I had to change into light blue scrubs, which looked like nurse clothes, and then turn my clothes over to them. I entered the ward through the nurse's station. This is where all our personal belongings were kept, medications were dispensed, and staff's files were kept. I was shown the day room, which was a large, airy room lined with tall, barred windows with beds underneath them. One of these would be mine. I was informed that any girl who was suicidal had to be under extreme supervision due to severe behaviors, had to sleep here. As the week wore on, I began to meet the other girls in the day room and sensed a haunting feeling as they observed all their bizarre behaviors. One beautiful native girl walked silently around with a dour expression on her face. She never spoke or interacted with any of the other girls. Sadly, she would often lie on her bed and masturbate publicly. There was no privacy in the day room. No one would make her stop. They just directed her at transitions. Some of the other girls had later told me that they had known her before and that she had been happy and popular, and someone had apparently sexually abused her, which had left her traumatized and crazy. My heart was broken for her. Another native girl was dark-skinned with short, messy, curly black hair. She was a paranoid schizophrenic, according to the other girls. She would go into rages complaining that she knew she, what was really going on and what they were keeping her against her will, and that the staff or the government had some underground city where they were planning and scheming about who knows what. She would prattle on and on in her delusions. She became especially upset after her parents would visit and then leave. Then there was a mute young lady who was the saddest of all. She was a pretty African-American girl who shuffled about like an old lady from room to room with eyes that were glassy and sad. I remember the staff putting cream in her short, matted hair and smoothing lotion onto her arms and hands while she sat silently on her bed allowing the ritual to be done. But although she seemed quiet and docile, the other girls told me that she could be the wildest of all and sometimes we wouldn't see her for days. Later I could hear her screaming in the restraint room. Hearing her like that impacted me deeply and left a cold, empty feeling in my soul. The other girls who had earned their way past the day room seemed like regular girls to me, although they told me that they were suicidal or runaways or just depressed and their parents couldn't help them anymore. My first night on the ward had furthered my feelings of uselessness even more. I had such a bright start, and now here I was on the psych ward, just like one of those guys in one oak flew over the cuckoo's nest. Although my home life had been out of control, I had always been in charge of my own entity. I was able to keep my belongings in order and have control over them and my academic abilities. That was my bright start. Now all that was taken away from me. I could no longer succeed, and no one even would care if I did. I guess I'm crazy now, I'd thought to myself. No need to try anymore. No need to be responsible anymore. My life was over and no one cared. I was a nobody. I was pondering all these thoughts while I stared up at the very high ceiling, surrounded by very white walls and very white floors, while I lay on my very white sheets, which covered my crunchy plastic sterile mattress. My first three days on the ward, 
I was under constant supervision and wasn't even able to go to the bathroom by myself because of my suicidal status. But slowly, I earned their trust, and killing myself just seemed like too much work anyway. I was so, so weary. However, I was still angry with myself that I didn't have the guts or the energy to pull it off. I'd always wanted to make an impact on the world, and now I couldn't even have the dramatic exit I had hoped for. All this just made me hate myself more. The days began to be filled with routine, which was nice because it made the time pass. And my favorite time was going to the school program. The two male teachers were fun-loving and lighthearted. I could tell they had a passion for their subjects and compassion towards us girls. It was so pleasant, I almost felt like I was at regular school. One of the teachers was in charge of language arts and history, while the other teacher was in charge of math and science. They even had their own classrooms, and we had to change classes, which promoted the feeling of real school, too. I couldn't help myself. This was my place to shine, so I did my very best work. And since it looked like I wouldn't be dead by the end of this year, I knew deep down in my heart that the only way out of my life of poverty was to go to college, so I would need to keep my grades up. I also wanted to show the teachers I wasn't like the other kids because I really invested in what they had to offer and really cared. Other aspects of daily living in the hospital began to take on a rhythm, too. At mealtimes, we were led to a small dining room with round tables and stools bolted to the ground. We would line up by a window and get our trays of food and then go sit back down, cafeteria style. Plodding along in line in our blue pajamas, we looked like inmates in a women's jail. Our treatment did not seem much better. This aspect of our lives was so hospital-like, nothing like the normalcy the school time offered. Of course, the beautiful, quiet, native girl would sit alone at a table by herself. She was always given a shake with her meal in order to help her gain weight. She never had any expression on her face as she ate silently, with a far-off look in her black eyes. Another memorable encounter for me was the on-site psychiatrist. He was the stereotypical old man who was balding with white hair, a beard, and wire-rimmed glasses. Right out of a movie. The only thing missing was the German accent. I remember my first evaluation with him. I thought I'd have a little fun and make some stuff up. Now I realize what a dangerous decision that was. Drugs could have been prescribed that would have zombified me, or my time in the hospital could have been prolonged. I didn't realize I was playing with fire. Thankfully, the old man saw nothing to worry about in me and said my time here would be short, and I would be leaving for my previous foster home in about a week. After this interview, I was moved out of the day room and promoted to the back of the ward where I could have my own private bedroom, which was really just a bed behind a couple of partitions. I was glad for this, though, and enjoyed my free time by myself reading books and relaxing on my bed. I always had been a big reader, and I ironically had found some interesting books on mental illness. One evening while I was reading on my bed, I began noticing I had severe itching in my private area between my legs. As the days progressed, it got worse and worse to the point it burned horribly when I peed and I could barely walk because of the pain and swelling. Finally, I had no choice but to tell the staff. They brought me back to an exam room where I had my first female exam. After the abuse that had happened to me, this was intimidating and humiliating, especially having to lie on the table with your legs in stirrups while wrapped in a napkin. The worst part was the male doctor inspecting me and then standing around conversing about my prognosis with two other people. Finally, I was told that I had a yeast infection and that some doses of simple medication, I would heal up very quickly. It was hard to believe that such a horrible problem could be so easily cured. About the same time all this drama was happening, some of the girls told me an old patient was coming back to the ward. The other kids talked about her in hushed, reverent tones. They told me she was some kind of servant of the devil and the most evil person they had ever met. 
I was impressed, curious, and afraid to meet her. I had a dark side that was interested in the occult, and I wanted to learn more. But when she finally arrived on the ward, I was a little disappointed. She was not as intimidating as I hoped she would be. I guess I was looking forward to meeting someone with some real power. Ultimately, this is what I longed for. Someone who would take control of my life and show me there really was a power greater and higher than myself. Angela was impre- an impressive-looking girl nonetheless. She had thick black shoulder-length hair with a white streak on one side, and the other side of her head was shaved down into a boy cut and slightly spiked. She had deep olive skin tone and dark, firm eyes, resolute yet sad. She had thick, husky, boyish frame and wore baggy clothes. I was determined to be her friend and learn more about her source of power. But as we got to know each other, she didn't talk about her dark ways at all. I was very disappointed but still thought she was cool because of her tough reputation. One night, Angela walked into my room and told me there was a full moon. I was surprised because it was strictly forbidden for us to enter each other's rooms unsupervised, especially at night. She asked me if I would like to join her in a howling at the moon. I was thrilled. I couldn't resist her recklessness. So we padded down the hallway together and looked up through the windows at the moon's brightness pouring onto the floor. She began to howl like a wolf and I joined in. In moments, staff ran onto the ward and began rapidly searching for us. Angela bolted, which surprised and impressed me. She was actually running away from the staff, so I ran too. We each hid behind different partitions and noiselessly waited. The staff quickly found us and sent us back to bed without much of reprimand. The next morning, I was expecting to be on restriction and have fewer privileges, but instead the staff told me I needed to prepare to go home. I was shocked to hear how resolute they were and seemingly unimpressed by my previous night's behaviors. Nobody seemed to think I needed to be there anymore. I began to gather my meager belongings from the staff's office and noticed my compact mirror was broken. I was disappointed by the lack of respect they had toward my possessions, considering I had so little. The last thing I'm going to read is one of my poems, which is actually a song now. And it goes like this. Sitting in a slum with my gap skirt on, waiting for my life to change. Sitting in the sun and the rocks and dirt. Hanging with my son Nate And oh, how I want my life to change But God is the only one who can make it happen now when I wait And so I wait And so I wait Crying in the night for my son to sleep Waiting for his life to change Singing in the day while I clean the house, waiting for Joe to get paid. And oh, how I want my life to change. But God is the only one who can make it happen now when I wait. And so I wait, and so I wait. Praying for the world in all its needs, knowing that the need is great. Giving all we can, even though it's small, is the cure to our selfish fate. And oh, how I want their lives to change. But God is the only one who can make it happen now when we wait. And so we wait. So we wait, and so we wait, and so we wait. Thank you. Yeah, wow. 
Thank you, Dana. Wow, that's great. Good job. Well, let's do chapter seven of Treasure Island. This is part two, The Sea Cook. I go to Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's, of keeping me beside him could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they called the Spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us, but in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey with this addition, to be opened in the case of his absence by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st. Dear Livesey, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor, ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. 200 tons. Name, Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend, Blandley, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so, I may say, did everyone in Bristol. As soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for, treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter. Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's a better right? growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum uh, go if squire ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that, I gave up all attempt at commentary and read straight on. Blandley himself found the Hispaniola and by the most admirable management got her for the merest trifle. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandley they go to the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold to me absurdly high, the most transparent calumnies. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship. So far there was not a hitch. The workpeople, to be sure, riggers and whatnot, were most annoyingly slow, but time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men, in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French, and I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen, 
till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me to the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock when, by the merest accident, I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get a smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched. So would you have been. And out of pure pity, I engaged him on the spot to be ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and lost a leg. But that I regarded as a recommendation, since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension, Livesey. Imagine the abominable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, but it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows by their faces of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear in an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old tarpaulins tramping round the capstan. Seaward ho! Hang the treasure! It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Levesey, come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother with Redruth for a guard, and then both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript. I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, had found an admirable fellow for a sailing master. A stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects, a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate, a man named Arrow. I have a boatswain with, uh, who pipes, Livesey, so things shall go man-of-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a banker's account which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and, as she is a woman of color, a pair of old bachelors like you and, and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife, quite as much as the health, that sends him back to roving. J.T. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. J.T. You can fancy the excitement into which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if I ever uh, I despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as even to grumble." The next morning he and I set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had so long been a cause of so much discomfort, was gone where the wicked cease from troubling. 
The squire had had everything repaired and the public rooms and the sign repainted and had added some furniture. Above all, a beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. He had found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she would not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood, for the first time, my situation. I had thought up to that moment of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving. And now, at sight of this clumsy stranger who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I am afraid I led that boy a dog's life. For as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner, Red Ruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to Mother and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, since he was repainted no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat, his saber-cut cheek, and his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner and my home was out of sight. The mail picked us up about dusk at the Royal George on the heath. I was wedged in between Red Ruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first and then slept like a log uphill and down dale through stage after stage, for when I was awakened at last it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street and that the day had already broken a long time. Where are we? I asked. Bristol, said Tom. Get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far down the docks to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither we had now to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work. In another, there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that all had been far over the ocean. I saw, besides, many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and tarry pigtails and their swaggering, clumsy sea-walk. And if I had seen as many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner with a piping boatswain and pigtailed singing seamen, to see bound for an unknown island and to seek for buried treasure. While I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in stout blue cloth coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo, the ship's company complete. Oh, sir, cried I, when do we sail? Sail, 
says he. We sail tomorrow. Winds of Change is the latest and the last novel in the Kate Nielsen series. I'm already getting hate mail. Well, actually, nice notes from disappointed readers who feel that Kate should live on in my imagination and in print. But as much as I love the Whispering Pines characters, I'm excited to move to a new topic, which will involve equally lovable characters. I promise. As you recall, the first book in the series, Winds of Wyoming, is about Kate Nielsen, a young woman newly released from a Pennsylvania prison, who leaves her past behind and heads to Wyoming to begin a new life. However, her past follows her and threatens to ruin her plans for reform. In the second book, Winds of Freedom, Kate's best friend, Amy, disappears and Kate goes to Texas to find her, having no idea of the evil that has ensnared her. And now here's the blurb for the third book, Winds of Change. Kate Nielsen Duncan discovers new purpose for her life when she and her mother-in-law, Laura Duncan, open a home on their Wyoming guest ranch for young trafficking victims. But her husband, Mike Duncan, insists the endless hours Kate spends at the children's home threaten their marriage. Following an argument with Mike, Kate treats three of the kids to an outing where the unimaginable happens. If Kate and the children survive, can she and Mike recover what they've lost? That should give you an idea of what the story's about. Here's an excerpt from the first chapter to trigger your curiosity. Kate leaned on the top rail and watched Clint Barrett, their ranch foreman, usher a small child into the center of the pen. He and the little Asian tyke wore matching red western shirts and navy bandanas with their boots and jeans. Clint's black Stetson was a perfect fit, but the five-year-old's oversized cowboy hat covered his eyebrows and threatened to block his vision. Someone yelled, Go Tieno! And the spectators who were gathered around the Freedom House Corral began to clap and cheer. Laura Duncan, who stood next to Kate, nudged her. Is our little guy cute or what? Kate smiled at her petite, blonde mother-in-law. Tieno is adorable, even if his hat's too big. She laughed. Next time Clint goes shopping for the Freedom House kids, he needs to take a woman with him. The rancher standing on the other side of Laura lifted his chin. Hey, he'll grow into it. Sure. Kate gave him a dubious look. In about eight years. Clint lifted a coiled rope off the dummy calf he'd made for the event by tacking a sun-bleached steer skull to one end of a wooden sawhorse. A frayed piece of twine attached to the other end served as a tail. He raised the rope in the air, and the crowd quieted. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced, I am proud to present our one and only contestant in the calf roping event this afternoon, Billy the Kid. The onlookers applauded, but Tiano pushed back his hat and frowned up at Clint. No, no, not my name, Mr. Clint. His features contorted with the effort to speak. Oh, I see. Clint turned to those standing outside the rails. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, wrong cowboy. He placed the coil on his shoulder, spread both arms wide, and shouted, The Whispering Pines Rodeo welcomes Wild Bill Hickok to our arena today. Again, hoots and hollers. 
This time, Chiano placed his hands on his hips and jutted his jaw. No, not that guy. Oops. Clint held out his palms. What can I say? Will you give me another chance to get it right? Squinting against the sunshine, the little boy studied the stocky cowboy. Finally, he offered a solemn nod. Clint surveyed the audience from one side of the horse pen to the other and then called out, What a privilege to have such a famous cowboy take time from a busy touring schedule to make a guest appearance at our Wyoming competition. Everyone, please welcome Calamity Jane with a hearty round of applause. The crowd burst into laughter. Tiano's eyebrows puckered. He glanced from Clint to the onlookers and back at Clint. Before he could say anything, Amy Iverson, Clint's girlfriend and Kate's best friend since prison days, called from the far side of the corral. Hey, Clint, I didn't grow up in the West, but even I know Calamity Jane was a girl. Again, laughter. Laura murmured, I'm not sure how much more Tiano can take. Kate nodded. She had the same concern. Like the other young Freedom House residents, Chino had been rescued from a Texas brothel called Executive Pride. And like the others, he could easily be overwhelmed by Clint's teasing. The foreman knelt beside the miniature cowboy and put his arm around the boy's narrow shoulders. Enough goofing around, bucko? Chino looked down. Clint squeezed his shoulder, and from his position on the ground, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at a calf-roping champion in the making. This young man, Mr. Tiano, from right here in Wyoming, will amaze you. He stood. But first, we need to warm up our rope and arms. While we're doing that, Miss Gianna, who's also from Wyoming, will astound you with her bareback riding skills. He handed the rope to Tiano, picked up the dummy calf, and carried it to the far side of the corral. The boy followed. Manuel Ortega, a college student and a longtime friend of the Duncans, opened the gate and led Kate's horse, Estrella Blanca, into the enclosure. Although Manuel wasn't a contestant, and most everyone knew he'd done some juvenile detention time, the crowd greeted him with hoots and whistles. Kate smiled. This was the life. Spring sunshine warmed her back, and a loving community warmed her spirit. Not only was she encircled by friends and family, Beauty surrounded her on every side. Beyond the corral, between stands of evergreen trees and aspen groves, laced with new growth, the Sierra Madre Mountains poked their white-topped peaks into a bright blue sky. Freshly sprouted grass and hillsides of wildflowers colored and scented the land. Deer, elk, and moose abounded. She even enjoyed sighting an occasional bear or wolf from a distance. Since she first set foot onto Whispering Pines property, she'd thank God every day, sometimes several times a day, for dropping her into the middle of paradise. He'd guided her to the prettiest spot in Wyoming and led her to the perfect occupation. Helping children who'd been exploited by human traffickers was an unexpected career change for her. She enjoyed her marketing work for the ranch, but what she was doing at the children's home not only fit her temperament, but brought context to her painful past filling her with the passion to do everything she could to nurture the kids. She'd never known such contentment. Yet, she rarely mentioned the specific purpose of the children's home. Many of their neighbors and even some of the ranch guests knew Freedom House was a place for orphaned and abandoned children, but that's all they knew. 
they weren't told the young residents had once been forced to prostitute their small, frail bodies. Kate turned to check the graveled parking area. What was keeping Mike? She considered calling him on the two-way radio in her SUV, but she'd mentioned the rodeo and cookout before they parted ways after breakfast and had left him a note. If he'd wanted to come, he'd be here by now. Her husband had been such a grouch lately, any mention of Freedom House set him off, despite the fact he'd been in on the plans from the beginning. She twisted her wedding rings around her finger. He changed the subject, left the room, or made crabby comments whenever she talked about Freedom House and the children, even though he knew she intended to work with the kids once the home was constructed. A gust of wind stirred manure-scented dust and blew hair across her eyes. She anchored the loose strand behind her ear. In the midst of dealing with a great aunt's dimension and the kids' multiple issues, she needed cooperation and support from Mike, not conflict. Hearing someone call, Go, Manuel, she looked back in time to see him walk her horse around the arena. Named for the white star on her forehead, Estrella Blanca was a beautiful dark gray horse with white stockings on her black legs. She was gentle and good with the kids. Manuel led the filly to where an olive-skinned girl wearing a helmet, jeans, and a t-shirt sat on the railing. He kept Australia steady while nine-year-old Gianna grabbed her charcoal mane and slid from the fence to her sturdy back. Ah! Laura placed her forearms on the railing and rested her chin on her hands, her gaze on the young rider. Kate knew what she was thinking. Gianna had come a long way. When the Albanian child arrived at Freedom House seven months earlier, she was a fearful little mouse of a girl, but she'd taken to Australia as if the horse was the best friend she'd searched for all her life. She loved the good-natured filly, and Australia loved her. Even so, Gianna had sat side-saddle for weeks before she found the courage to swing her leg over the horse's back. Sexually victimized children had difficulty opening their legs. Other children might do splits or cartwheels without a second thought but not the Freedom House kids. Unlike Tiano, whose parentage was a mystery, Gianna knew who her mother was and where her family lived. But when a U.S. emissary visited the woman to discuss reunification, she told the interpreter if they shipped Gianna home, she'd throw her out and bar the door. Her daughter, the mother insisted, was tarnished and unmarriageable. Plus, she hadn't fulfilled her promise to work hard in America and send money home to help feed and clothe her five siblings. The emissary was also a woman counted with. Gianna was told she'd serve as a maid to a wealthy American family, not as a sex worker. In response, the woman's eyes had blazed and she'd rattled off a string of angry words before shoving them both out the door. As it slammed behind them, the emissary stared at the translator. What was that all about? The girl failed her family, he said. She's an embarrassment to them. Refusal to allow her back into their home is a matter of honor. The social worker who informed Gianna she wouldn't be able to return to Albania expected tears and was surprised by her response. I told you they don't want me. Kate grieved for Gianna's loss, but the girl had moved on, never once mentioning her family. Gianna wrapped her legs around the filly and pride in her tenacity replaced Kate's sorrow for her past. Manuel clicked his tongue and, with the lead rope draped loosely over his shoulder, escorted the pair along the railing. "'Good job, Gianna,' Laura called amidst other shouts of encouragement. Kate sneezed when they passed, like she did every time she got close to her horse. Australia loved to roll in the dirt. No matter how often they brushed her, she was a perpetual dust cloud. The pair circled the arena once and stopped. 
Now, for the best part, Manuel aimed a thumb at the girl. Miss Gianna here is going to ride with one hand in the air. Bravo, shouted Jean, one of the children's therapists who come, had come up for the afternoon. All the kids loved Jean, a sweet Chinese-American lady who was able to coax even the most reticent child out of his or her shell during therapy sessions. She also made the best shrimp fried rice on the planet. Robin, the children's other therapist, yelled, Show us how it's done, Gianna. While Jean was petite and wore her dark hair short, Robin was tall with long red hair. Her specialty was play therapy. She helped the children act out their anxieties and trauma with dolls, action figures, plastic animals, and other toys in the well-equipped playroom, which included a playhouse. They also spent a lot of time role-playing and reenacting memories and incidents in the freestanding therapy sandbox. Manuel turned to Gianna. Ready? She hunched her shoulders. You did it this morning, he smiled up at her. You can do it again. Without responding, she dug her fingers deeper into Australia's mane. Manuel walked to her side and touched her knee. The girl recoiled. Oh, dear, Laura whispered. He forgot she doesn't like to be touched. Uh, Manuel shoved his hands into his pocket. You want to try it for, like, maybe three seconds? Gianna looked away. Kay felt sorry for Manuel, who appeared to have no idea what to do next. Sweetie, the tremulous voice came from the far side of the corral. Thanks, Becky. I'd say I can't wait to hear what happens next, but I have to admit, I, I know. <laughs> and a special thanks to Dana Longpre. What a good job that was of reading and, uh, and almost without, without a breath and without a drink of water or anything. She just went for it. So good job. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.